I just jot them down on my computer. And so last week, and I went to put everything together, I realized too much information. So trying to whittle it down, my thoughts into a sermon is a challenge this week, but I did tell Pastor Cher that if I'm a little bit longer, she will be shorter next week. So, and it'll all balance out. Uh, Give me a little grace this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 to chapter 6 and verse 4. There's many, many scriptures I could use as my text. This is one good one. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. So the King James Version says, God forbid that we do any such thing. He says we died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a brand new life. Thank you, Lord, today for your word. And God, I pray for clarity of mind this morning as I try to present this in a way that would be understandable to me and to others. I pray, God, for my words that there be clarity of speech, because this really, there's so much could be said. As we talk about law, change, and the change, or law and grace and change. Help us, God, as we work through this this morning. I ask for your presence. Amen. You may be seated. The law. Regulations. Grace in a changing society. How are you at accepting change? Do you embrace it? Do you deny it? Do you fight it? Do you welcome it? Do you resist it? Do you kick at it? (coughs) How are you at accepting change? There's the lyrics of a country western song that goes something like this. Nothing ever changes, but nothing stays the same. He goes back home. And that's what he says. We go back home. Oh, nothing ever changes in this small town. But then again, nothing ever stays the same. We see both. Someone said change is inevitable unless it's from a vending machine. Someone else said change is inevitable. Growth is optional. And someone changed it to this. Growth is intentional. Benjamin Franklin said, when you're finished changing, you are finished. And so we have to embrace change. We have to walk through that with grace. We've got to change. In April 1985, the Bellamy brothers released a song entitled Old Hippie. It hit number two in the Billboard's Hot Country 
singles. Maybe because we could understand the lyrics. Maybe it's because we could say, I know where you've been. I've been there myself, and maybe we're still there. Let me share with you some of the lyrics from this incredible, incredible song from back in the 80s. He turned 35 last Sunday. In his hair, he found some gray. Don't know what that's like. But he, don't laugh, that hurts me when you laugh. But he still ain't changed his lifestyle. He likes it better the old way. <laughs> I like this part. He gets off on country music because disco left him cold. Then he gets down to the chorus. This is the, this is the one I want you to get. Because he's an old hippie and he don't know what to do. Should he hang on to the old or should he grab on to the new? He's an old hippie. This new life is just a bust. He ain't trying to change nobody. He's just trying real hard to adjust. We've all been there. They called him the hermit of Gully Lake. In fact, there's a book written about it. It's in my office. In the 1940s, the hermit from Gully Lake, he headed to the deep, deep woods of Nova Scotia because he wanted to avoid going to war. And little did I know back in the 70s that he was back in the deep woods of Nova Scotia, 30 miles from where I grew up. Never heard anything about this hermit from Gully Lake. But he ran there because he didn't want to go to war. And he stayed in there. His name is actually Willard Hitchener McDonald. He spent the next 50 years in the deep, deep woods of Nova Scotia. In fact, that's where he died. During his time in the deep, deep woods of Nova Scotia, many would go in and visit him. In fact, my step-grandfather told me when I was home last, oftentimes he'd go take the walk in, way in the deep woods to visit with him. Many would go in and tell him, come on out, the war's over. They're not going to come and get you. But he was afraid they might get him. And the war's over, come on out. He wouldn't come out. I'm staying in the bush. I'm staying in the deep wilds. Later in life, he, he did manage to come out a little once in a while just to go and get some extra food and then go back in the woods. He'd stay. Many years later, someone said, you've got to come out. So we're going to build you a nice cabin closer to civilization. Nice, beautiful cabin. You deserve it. They brought him out and he stayed in that cabin one night. He said, it's too loud. It's too busy. Too much traffic. I believe three cars went by. He one night and went back into the deep woods of Nova Scotia and stayed there. He learned a lifestyle in the deep, deep woods of Nova Scotia that he could not give up. He just could not change. Couldn't do it. Can't readjust. And that's where he spent 50 years. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Adjusting to change. We all wrestle with this. Should we hang on to the old or should we grab on to the new? We're just all trying really, really hard to adjust. Ten years ago, I got my first cell phone. And then my youngest son, Matthew, got one and I would see him I didn't bring it with me. I might have had a phone call. I'm going to miss it. Or a text. 
I'd see him texting. And I, I went to him and I said, Matthew, Matthew, can you just give me, just give me a good, because re- it looks so stupid. Like, why don't you just call them? People do it front seat to back seat. Just call them. It looked, can you, okay, so Matthew, can you just give me a good reason why you text? Because if I can buy into this, I'll do it. Well, he gave me two great ones. Two. First, you can get right to the point. I like that one. Cut out the preliminaries. Get to the point. And secondly, you can answer whenever you feel like it. Might be a day later. Might be never. Might be next week. I said, I like it, I like it, I like it. Because you wouldn't be right to get on the telephone and say, meet me at 10, bye. You know, like, hello, how you doing? And how's your day? Good, how's your fun? Hello. You get right to the chase. I've been texting ever since. I don't even check my voicemails anymore. I've been texting because I bought into it and I like it. Change. Should we grab onto the old or... Hang on to the old or grab on to the new. What should we do? Well, that all depends. Then along came Wi-Fi. Much to the embarrassment of my youngest son, I say Wi-Fi. <laughs> along came Wi-Fi. Reminds me of my father. I got a little grace on this morning. My father, he went to the car lot, look at a car. And there was, he'd never seen it before, and it was, and it was a Grand Prix, and so he goes into the salesman, I'm with him, and he says, how much is that Grand Prix out there? And I said, Dad, Dad, Alfred's Dad, you embarrass me. It's not a Grand Prix, it's called a Grand Prix. We bought that car in 1978. Weefy. Weefy. Could you show me? I was in Ottawa this past spring, and I sat around a table with a younger man. I forgot my phone. I wanted to bring it. Anyways, I said, could you show an older gentleman how to use my smartphone and Wi-Fi? No, Wi-Fi. Show me how to use Wi-Fi. So he showed me, went into all this stuff. I don't know what he was doing. He said, here's how you use Wi-Fi, and now you can do this and that. Great. I've been using it ever since. And I go into the restaurant, and I want them to know that I'm current, I'm up to date. And I say, do you have Wi-Fi? <laughs> you know I don't say that. But I was saying Wi-Fi for a while. Now it's hard for me to say it right, Wi-Fi. Change. Should we hang on to the old or grab on to the new? Well, that all depends. Are you embracing change or mired in Solid concrete singing, I shall, I shall not be moved. We're living in a time when there's never been so much change. So much is happening so rapidly, so fast. You buy a computer, it's outdated by the time you get it home. Change, 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 being bombarded by change. Does that excite you? Does it intimidate you? Does it threaten you? Does it thrill you? Does it frustrate you? Well, that depends. That depends. I was blown away by the closing ceremonies of the Summer Olympics in London. We've come a long way since Barcelona, Spain in 1992. Check it out on YouTube. We've come a long, long way. My wife and I are watching it upstairs on our old tech TV. 
old tech small screen TV. I got something much better down in the lower auditorium in the basement, but I'm not allowed down there. My son is down there. Anyways, I, let's go down and watch it. We went down and watched it on the big screen, high tech, HD. Wow! It was like I was almost there. I like that change. I like that change. I'm still booted out of the basement, but I like that change. Now let me, let me dive. There's no way to trans, easy way to transition here. Let me just dive right into it as change relates to the spiritual dimension. Change. Change is always there, always going, wrestling with change. What happens in the spiritual dimension? Should we hang on, hang on to the older, grab on to the new? Let me say it again. It all depends. <laughs> well, all this wrestling in my mind, I've had it for the last few months. I went to Edmonton about a month ago, and I met up with my friend Randy that I haven't seen in probably eight years in Edmonton. So let's go for coffee. We go for coffee, and we begin to talk about old times. You know, we do that at our age. Old times, and we talked about the 80s back when we were in Bible college, and we graduated, and so, yeah, times have changed, and things are going on. How's life with you? And then he asked me, do you believe in eternal security? Do you believe in eternal security? And I said, yes, I believe in eternal security. I believe that as long as you choose to be in the hands of God, you are eternally secure. See, some people define it as once saved, always saved, and you can't possibly lose your salvation. Oh, there are people that love that. I'll tell you why they like it. They like it because it works for them, and they like it because this gives them a license to willingly sin. All they can see is the grace, the grace, the grace, the grace of God. It's mighty and it's great and I've got it. I can't lose my salvation. I can do whatever I want. And God will take me home and well done, thou good and faithful servant. Really? Really? I struggle with this one-sided view where you're just kind of a license to do whatever you want to do. Now enter this. We got law on one side and grace on the other. This is the best way that I could think of this week to try and explain this. Law and legalism on one side and grace on the other. Francis Schaeffer one time said, how shall we then live? I don't know anything else about the book. Don't even know if I read it. But I know the cover of the book, or some point in there, said, how shall we then live? It's, I believe it was a series. And I've often, how shall we then live in the face of change? Law, legalism, grace, on the other hand. And when the passing of time, the older you get, the older I get, the more things change. Where is this for you? We are always changing, so do you find yourself with time that the law is moving this way? Or do you find over time that, that grace is sliding over here with the passing of time? 
Where is it? Where's law? And where legalism? And where's grace when it comes to your life? Your lifestyle and things that you do. Places you go. Which side are you moving? As a child, I remember us being pretty legalistic. In fact, I remember one Sunday morning driving home from church. I'm in the back seat of the, of the family car and I see a man working on his house. On Sunday. And I said to my mother, Mom, his house is going to burn down, isn't it? Mom said, yes, Gary, it is. Now, my mother would laugh at that today because she's not as legalistic as she used to be. And I better say that or she'll kill me when, if she hears this because sometimes she does on the Internet. Mom, you're not that way any longer. And also, the preaching was pretty legalistic. Now, I hope you understand what I'm going to say. The preaching was legalistic. We were so good at preaching against alcohol and smoking. I remember those sermons as a kid. We were so good at preaching against smoking and alcohol. And I remember it being, it better not cross your lips on the way in. It's sin. It was a focus on the externals. But we were not so good at the internals. What was crossing our lips on the way out? Gossip. Slander. Destructive words. Busybodies. Language that was, should not be coming out of our lips, but we're focused on what is going in. We're focused on what we see. Should also be concerned about what we hear. So instead of encouraging those with bad habits, what do we do? We talked about them. As the church years ago when I was young, we talked, look, I saw them, I saw them, and this is what they were doing. We talked about them instead of going and encouraging them and helping them through it. Now, I know that alcohol is the devil's playground, but I want you to hear the balance So is corrupt, tearing down speech. And sometimes we think that's okay. But it's not. It's just as bad. You're reading the Bible. Doesn't the Bible... I haven't studied this, but isn't there more said about the tongue, the speech, what we're saying, than alcohol? But we focus on we're so legalistic. But I'm saying it's just as bad. I'm saying beware. Even James said this. The tongue is unruly. James would say the tongue is a sinner. You can't tame the tongue. And boy, have we done a good job at tearing people down with our tongues. The church these days. Ooh. But I'm glad that we recognize that there's a balance. The devil's playground is not just one Side. It's just not one thing, it's also other. It's not just what goes in, it's also what comes out. There has to be balance. Here's the rope again. Law and grace. Law 
or legalism on one side and grace on the other, where are you on this line? Where would you tend to find yourself to be at? Swing this way or swing that way? I said to my friend Randy, I find myself analyzing, observing, and studying where I am at these days. I find myself observing, analyzing where the church is at these days. Change we must and change we will. We need to embrace change. We can't stay lost in the 50s. Uh, so to which side are we favoring? Now, I'm no, by no means a spiritual legalist, but I'm also not a casual, spiritual, low-cost, spongy grace grabber. Grace is not a license for me to let flesh go unchecked and unbridled. I'll do whatever I want because there's so much grace. And if you are over on the grace side where you sin in order for grace to abound, you're not a well-balanced Christian. Oh, you can bring up Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith, it's a gift of God. No man can boast. Not at works, lest any man should boast. You can bring that up. Thank the Lord for the grace of God. Thank God that we are saved, that we're all part of the family of God. Thank the Lord for that. But we've also got to take that scripture, match it up against what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He said, God forbid that we would go on knowingly sinning in order that we can soak in more grace and more grace. What does Paul say? He said, no, God forbid that you live that way. It's not right. He said, you died to sin. To paraphrase, Paul would say, pull up your socks and live the life. Live the separated life. Live the life that tells you what's wrong and what's Right and live the way God wants you to live. Do your very, very best. Be disciplined. You can cut it any way you like, but Romans 6 and 23 still says the wages of sin is death. Sin will be punished and sin will be dealt with. And Paul knew the constant battle that believers have with law on one side and grace on the other and trying to make it down through the center line. Paul knew that that's why he wrote so much about balance. Read the book of Galatians. We're not going to read it this morning, of course. But when you go home, it's all about balance. It's all about understanding law. It's all about understanding grace. It's all about living in a balanced way of life. Okay, I think what would be easier for us if we had a list of sins not to commit. Okay, give it to us straight. Just give us a list. Give us 10, 12, 15, 20, whatever it is. Give us a list and we'll abide by those. That'll make it so much easier for all of us, right? Maybe. Yes and no. I know the Bible lists sins and we can document that, write it down. I could have it there for you. The Bible lists sins. I also find that the church and Christians are pretty good at listing sins. There's two. Okay, we have the Bible, which is truth, and we have Christians. Sometimes it's not so true. Many times it is, but we've got our list. And then James throws this in that I want you to hear. Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. 
Okay, now we're away from the list. Now this is getting on the inside of us. If you know, if God just impresses upon you, it may not be in the Bible, it may not even be what someone tells you is sin, but if God just impresses something upon you and says, for you, this is wrong, don't do it, and when you do do it, it's sin. That's what James is saying. Kind of throws a monkey wrench into some things. This means, now, what is sin to you may not be a sin to somebody else. And if you try to push your sin upon someone else, you become legalistic, you become narrow-minded, you become someone that people avoid because you're not exactly an encourager in the faith. You are a pain in the faith. So how are we going to live? How are we going to live? As Francis Schaeffer said, how shall we then live? Are we going to be law-living people or loose-living people? As the world changes, how do we keep the balance and, uh, and live the balance in the balance zone? When change is happening all the time and law and grace, how do we kind of steer ourselves down through the center? I got three things. Uh, we, we can't be like the old hippie. We meet people. They never change. They're stuck in the 60s. I see you. We can't be like the old hippie. Just can't adjust. We can't be like the hermit from Gully Lake. We gotta live. We gotta navigate our way through life. We gotta, we gotta think. Got to use wisdom. How do we embrace change? I got three kind of three things. Number one, when you come in this morning, you got an elastic band. It's not because I'm going to stretch the truth. If Cher was here, she'd laugh really loud. Man, you guys, you can do better. I'll give you some more opportunities before the sermon's over. I, I thought, okay, here's what I thought this week. This makes sense to me. Number one, you've got to look at law and look at grace as you do a stretched elastic band. So everybody take your elastic band out and stretch it. Don't break it. And don't shoot it at your neighbor or me. I hope you never see elastic band the same way again. Stretch it. Now you got it. You got it taunt. Taught. Sorry. Nova Scotia tongue. Taunt. Taught. My wife says it's, that's the way you say it. Hold it like that. Okay? This side is law. This side is grace. The reason why I said stretch it is because I believe you have to have equal amounts of pressure on both sides. If you relax law, you start moving too far over to grace, like I mentioned earlier. And if you relax grace, you start swinging over this way into law. Both are not right. But what I'm saying is you have to be sober, alert, vigilant. You've got to effort to make sure you've got both taught, holding it tight. You're conscious of it. 
conscious. Earlier, Pastor Vern read John chapter 1, verse 14. I've always read, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. You get the last part of that? That Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. In our lives, if we have too much truth and not enough grace, we're not going to be good witnesses. We just go, here's how it is, here it's how it is, here it is. Not much grace. But if you swing too far the other way, too much grace. Oh, everything you do is just fine. Not enough truth. Again, you've got to keep it taught. And this is what I believe makes sense when it's law and grace. I've got to be, if I'm conscious of this, stretching this, I'm going to be realizing I've got to be disciplined in this. I've got to be mindful of it. I've got to watch what I say, what I do, and run it by this. Am I favoring law? Am I favoring grace? That kind of made some sense to me when I thought of it that way. How shall we then live? Number two, watch this video from Paul Harvey that was first broadcast in 1965. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington, and then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious and what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. 
I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. This was emailed to me quite a while ago. What a realization. Wake up call. I, I heard, read this or heard this recently that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make people believe he does not exist. We have to realize that 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 is the reality at this very, very moment. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around your mind looking to devour. He prowls around your home looking to devour. He prowls around your working place looking for someone to devour. He prowls around your leisure time looking, waiting. And he loves those that are caught in legalism. I just believe the enemy loves that. Those that are caught in legalism, the letter of the law can keep them from getting to know a loving God. Oh, he loves it when they're caught. He also, on the other hand, loves those who cheapen the grace of God by loose living. Oh, grace is so marvelous. And so wonderful, I can do whatever I want. I can sin, I can sin, I can sin. He's got both sides in his lion's jaws. He loves it. So in, in the process of how should we then live, I, I just thought that would be good to show you that. Keeps us alert to the enemy who's out there wanting to devour us. And then thirdly, I thought that since Paul Harvey penned and wrote, if I were the devil, here's what I'd do. I wrote down ten things if I were a Christian. If I were a Christian, here is what I would do. If I were a Christian, I would not judge others lest I myself be judged. I would praise and build up fellow family members in the faith. I would resist the temptation to tear down and destroy by my words and actions, lest I cause them to stumble and then lose out myself. If I were a Christian, I would nurture my communion with God by regular prayer, Bible reading, and meditation. If I were a Christian, I would nurture my I read that. Number three, if I were a Christian, I would live each day with a realization this could be my last day alive on this earth. Well, if I were a Christian, I would regularly look up to the skies and say to myself, this actually could be the moment 
when Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, might return. If I were a Christian, I would hold all of God's money and God's possessions with open palms and not clenched fists. If I were a Christian, that's what I'd do. Number six, if I were a Christian, I would go into all of my world and seek out the hurting, the poor, the needy, and give to them until it really cost me something. Oh, if I was a Christian, I would pray for the power of the Holy Spirit and then go into all of my world and share the good news of the gospel in every God-given opportunity. If I were a Christian... I would refuse to simply just attend church. But I would commit myself to its vision, purpose, and dreams. I would look for ways to become involved. I would desire nothing less than to work to see my church grow and be all that God intended it to become. If I were a Christian, that's what I would do. If I were a Christian, number nine... I would look for opportunities to fellowship with people of like faith as me so both me and my family may nurture others while being nurtured ourselves. And number 10, if I was a Christian, I would live each day conscious of constructing a godly legacy so those coming after me would be quick to follow me as I followed Christ. If I were a Christian... That's what I would do. But hey, wait a minute. I am a Christian. Am I doing it? But hey, just wait a minute. Chances are pretty good that those seated in front of me are also Christians. Are you doing it? Take 30 seconds, think about it.